Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So, uh, Paul Vallis supporters... um, you understand that this race is not over, not even in terms of the runoff matchup. You understand this, yes, right? Yes, I and do. Whether or not, and whether or not Paul is going to be included in the runoff, that is still an open question. We understand this? Because if you didn't understand it, uh, maybe this uh, poll that was released yesterday by Lori Lightfoot, yes, it's her internal polling, but uh, internal polling doesn't mean that uh, it is necessarily positive for the campaign that's releasing the campaign in question. In other words, um, I've done this a lot just because uh, it's your pollster doesn't mean your pollster is delivering you the news that you want to hear. And clearly Lightfoot felt compelled to release these results that she released yesterday because of some recent polling that showed her in third, even in fourth and questions arising or hopes improving that she wouldn't even make the runoff. That's still an open question, too, let me hasten to add. But her uh, polling that was taken between the 18th and the 22nd of this month has her at 25, Vallis at 22, Chewy at 18, Wilson at 11, Brandon Johnson at 9, and on down the line. And so the point here is to say that it's what I've been saying for some time, which is, it's very much a toss-up among the top five, probably more likely than not the top three, meaning Lightfoot, Vallis, and, and Chewy. There's probably three for two on an outside chance if Willie Wilson or Brandon Johnson were to do something uh, inter- interesting that doesn't um, uh, just go to type isn't conventional for them. Brandon Johnson, nobody knows who he is outside the Chicago Teachers Union in his Cook County Commissioner District. And let me tell you something, in his Cook County Commissioner District, most people don't know who he is unless they're a member of the Teachers Union. But um, maybe 5-4-2 on the outside, but probably more likely 3 for 2 And so then what is the closing argument with uh, a little more than four weeks to go? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. Six four six three six. Type in DA, then a quick comment. I, I know if if and when Paul Vallis wins, he'd never shut down the schools like they did during. I mean, you know, initially the first two weeks, yes, but he would never do that. He would listen to the science and the data and listen to opposing views, not just one doctor, to decide the fate of all of our children. So that's and, going to be his closing argument, or you want that to no, be his closing argument? No, I just argument? want people to remember that. I don't think that that's been said enough. And, again, he's a strong, reliable leader. He's not flashy. He's not going to be making TikTok videos or dressing up like a coronavirus buster. 
And I, I trust him. And I think that he's going to eventually, eventually possibly lower our taxes. But the first thing that everybody cares about is crime. So why is he struggling? I mean, I, the, the characterization is that he's surging from his campaign. Right. Uh, okay. If that's if you call 22 percent, 23 percent, 24 percent, if you call that a surge, is that a surge in this field? Is that uh, lapping the field? No, I don't think so. He's been around for 20 years. Mm-hmm. He ran four years ago. He has these plans. He has these credentials. So why isn't why is it that not even, uh, you know, his uh, homeboys in the 19th Ward are excited about him? Why is it so many people believe he will not win, he can't win? I mean, we know going into a runoff, just the base of the data, that if it were Paul Vallis and any of the other, oh, certainly Lightfoot or Garcia, he's the underdog. Why? What's the problem? Got a text message. Tell Dan to be quiet. I'm going to go volunteer for him. <laughs> That's good. Go you have a right to go vo- knock on doors for Paul Vallis. That's yeah, and I'm not going to be quiet. No. <laughs> and Mary Nor- Lightfoot just... yesterday responded because they had um, a, a, the Chicago Tribune editorial board. She and Garcia were there, and she responded to the Paul Vallis poll that shows him in the lead. Well, first of all, a poll that was uh, done by some dude on the Northwest side who's a Republican um, with questionable methodology, you can credit that, but we don't. Yeah. yeah. Uh, whatever. The, the, this isn't about getting into the weeds on polling. It's about what I was saying and have been saying, which is that you've got, uh, you know, a lot of candidates that seemingly have very low ceilings and it's a mishmash. And the uh, um, the Paul Vallis campaign and some Paul Vallis supporters like that person whose text you just read, who think that if. Criticism is silenced, then Paul Vallis will win. Or who think that uh, Paul Vallis is sitting on a lead. That's the way the campaign seems to be operating to me. And like I said before, when we were talking about this, I I think it was yesterday, what is different about Paul Vallis, the candidate, this time around? What's different about the campaign? He's got a couple of more uh, big Republican donors— Generally, Republican donors who are underwriting the uh, substantially underwriting his campaign, which has allowed him to bring in uh, Howard Dean's guy, Joe Trippi, as his general consultant. And so he's up on TV with very conventional television spots. Well, last time he didn't have that. Last time he was standing there with a broom and some kids. I'm going to clean up Chicago. What is different about it's his more candidacy? Campaign. How? He, uh, I, I feel like he's got more swagger, like he's more confident. Um, he's more determined now than ever. He's 69 years old. He doesn't have to do this. He's doing this for us. He's not doing it for himself. And that's what I think people should realize. Oh, Lori Lightfoot's doing this for herself. Oh, Chewy God. Garcia. Don't uh, Stop. Okay, well, uh, pa- that's just Paul how Va- I feel. Pa- well, Paul Vallis, here's somebody who you know really wants it when he says, I don't need to do this, which mm-hmm. Paul Vallis was saying for a long time, and he finally listened to somebody, not me, because I've been telling him to stop, stop for a long time, and he continued, stop saying that. You know what that sounds like? A political hack. I'm selfless. No, they're not. Not a single one of them. Not a single candidate for public office. That is unadulterated, unmitigated hackery. 
I don't need to do this. Then don't. Then don't. Don't do us any favors. And I don't care who says it, Paul Valls or anybody else. I don't need to run for this office. Then don't run for it. We'll live. You're not a savior. He's doing it for us. He's not doing it for himself. Nonsense. Silliness. Grade school understanding. You really are going to fall for that? I mean, this electorate, Chicago, falls for just about anything, so I get it. Well, but it's not if, him if, who, if, Dan. If you think, He's the only one he wants school choice. I think you'd be behind him. And you're I not. am for school choice, and I appreciate that he's for school choice. But don't give me this selflessness routine if that's what you're going to close with, because that will repel me more. So, yes, the question wasn't, do I agree with Paul Vallis on many policies? No. Have I've always had gotten on well with Paul in our conversations, both on this show and privately. He's a smart guy. He's a capable guy. I like a lot of what he has to say. None of that is the question about him. None of that explains the question or answers the question that I raised. So why? Why is he still struggling with just as low a ceiling as Lori Lightfoot or Chuy Garcia, for that matter? I mean, this is basically this race is a statistical dead heat between the three of them. Why? Why is he? Is he? Is, are you just going to chalk it up to that's just the Chicago electorate, and you just have a very small percentage of people that are willing to elect a honky these days? Maybe, but I want to. I want an explanation, especially from the Paul Vallis uh, supporters who keep uh, scolding me for daring to not be a full-throated supporter. No, I have questions. I've raised those questions. I have concerns. I've raised those concerns. I have thoughts about what needs to happen in Chicago uh, for Chicago to uh, start to climb out of this pit of despair and, that they've that we've inflicted upon ourselves. So I so I'm going to share. And he if he, and if you approached him with your ideas, he would listen to you. You think you could get to Lightfoot or Chewy Garcia? They won't even come on the show, Dan. Do 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 you think I? think I could get to Lightfoot or Chuy Garcia or care to. So that's not the point. The point is, if not Vallis and if not Wilson, what did I say? What have I said on the show before? I'd like to see Lightfoot get reelected. I'd like to see the elimination of hope and maximum punishment. We live here and we don't want that. Well, you uh, you are not the spokesman for the city. No, I'm Um, not. You're spokesman for yourself. I have a vote. And yeah, right. You're, spoke, you're a spokesman for yourself and people who agree with you. Right. We. So this we. It's not as big as you think. Uh, what I would like to see and why I would like to see it uh, is because it's not bad enough. That's what the electorate is saying. It's not bad enough. Or perhaps that's what they're going to say. It seems like, you know, based on Paul Vallis getting barely more than one in five votes right now, that's what they're saying. So why try to put perfume on this pig? Make sure people can uh, get the full stink. Maybe they won't be able to hold their noses anymore. I don't want to reward her for bad behavior. She's ruined our city. And you right. Wanna, you want her to keep going? Uh, you I want just, her to go, go, go. I just explained why. Yeah, no, I know. Greg in Jefferson Park. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, he don't need uh, a job. He's collecting, what, about 14 pensions for all the school districts? 
Anyways, about three or so weeks ago, I sent. I went to his website because I had heard he was going to every ward and going to speak and answer questions from people. So I said, hey, you know, uh, when you come to the 45th ward, could you please let me know where it's going to be and uh, if I need a ticket or something to get in, you know, could I go in? I'd like to uh, express my concerns. And, you know, about four or five days later, I get a, uh, you know, I get a note back from them. Basically, you know, it's the standard, uh, here's what I'm all about, this is what I'm going to do, and give me money. You know, I need support. You know, well, can you help Everybody does that money? Yeah, but you know what? Here's the thing, Amy. For for a guy who's got the money that he's got, and he's got this great uh, campaign person, you would think that he would have, in most wards, like a ward captain to be able to take care of that. And on his website, when he when he gets feedback from people, what ward do you live in? Then have had that individual person look over the uh, concerns or whatever anybody might have and get back to them in a manner addresses their concerns. It's like all I'm asking for is where are you going to be. I've I've never seen where he's coming. I know he was in the 41st ward, but I have no idea if he's coming to the 45th ward, where he's going to be. I haven't seen it. I haven't heard about it. And I'm back to where I originally was. I'm voting for Willie Wilson. End of story. You guys, have a good day. Thanks, Greg. The other Greg in Rogers Park. Hi, good morning. Real quick, um, number one, here in the 49th ward, we elected one of the worst people ever, Marita Hayden, who I hope we can vote out, but I doubt it. But the people in this city, a lot of the voters, they like that attitude of Lightfoot. They like that condescending. They like the entitlements. They like the handouts. They like the fact that she's ruining the city. There are a lot of people that silently love her attitude, and they're going to vote for her because they love what she's doing, because there are a lot of weak, wicked, evil, greedy people here. And I think that's the biggest problem we have. And I agree with Dan. Maybe we need more of the same until we haven't had enough pain yet to make a change, just like a, just like an addict. They haven't hit rock bottom yet. And I, I hope she loses, but I, I think there are a lot of evil in this city that love this woman. That's all i got to say. Thanks for the call, Greg. There's certainly a lot of women in the city and some male impersonators that, you're right, have the same personality she does, which is absolutely detestable. You've made the switch, and it feels so good. You've switched to Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, Equal housing lender. Signature Bank. Answer. Only the biggest stories. Only the biggest guests. And only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. We're talking about the Chicago mayor's race with some new polling out over the last several days, including Lightfoot's internal polling that was released yesterday showing her with a slight lead. It's basically a statistical dead heat between... Her, Vallis, and Chewy Garcia. Though Chewy has definitely receded 
Um, he's not a good candidate. He's a career political hack. He uh, is uh, gotten some bad press recently uh, related to campaign cash from Sam Bankman-Fried before the FTX ca- collapse, as well as uh, his name being invoked uh, in connection with the Madigan investigation that's led to Madigan's indictment, you know, the ComEd scandal and so forth. Well, like, why is Chewy running? He, he thinks that he's the savior or something. I don't even know why he got in the race. He already won his congressional seat again, so just stay there and do nothing there. But just if he gets – nothing's going to change if he why, wins. Why, why do people run? They, why do most people run? They want status and power. Not so Paul Vallis. So that's why – yeah, I know, right. Paul Vallis is, is Mother Teresa. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just silliness. And when you, you people who cast it in that light are doing, frankly, Paul Vallis a disservice because okay. nobody believes that. Um, but I w- here's something about Paul Vallis. One more note on this before we move on. Uh, you know, you, 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 I mean, you don't need to make a spectacle of yourself like an ass the way that Triple Threat does with dressing up a Rona Busters and a ridiculous TikTok videos. But you do have to give people something to grab onto emotionally. And, you know, I'm struck by the Vallis candidacy, as I was essentially arguing. It's the same candidacy you've seen in his other runs for various offices. Very technocratic. And it's just Paul. The commercial's very conventional. Uh, He is not going to win if he were to get to the runoff, he is not going to win running a conventional campaign. So what does he need to do? He's going to have to take risks. Okay. And so that means doing something more than just repeating crime is bad and I have a plan. It does mean uh, embracing school choice. It does mean and talking about it, laying the foundation for a hammering you're going to take if you make the runoff. Instead, he's silent on the issue, trying to get to the runoff. As soon as he gets to that runoff, and then it's a sprint to April 4th, he only got 34 days, uh, he is going to get blitzed from all sides because the, the power structure will consolidate against him uh, and for whoever his opponent is, say Chewy or Lightfoot, more likely than not. And then he's going to be on defense. Or what's he going to do, walk away from school choice altogether? Where is he speaking with moral clarity And I don't just mean on our show. I mean making this central to what he is saying on the trail. On the OIG report on CPS. He was a former CPS superintendent. On the sexual abuse and potentially massive financial fraud going on at CPS that has been ongoing for some time. He's not saying anything about that. You have to make a larger why argument. And he is a completely completely a what candidate. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do about taxes. Here's what I'm going to do about education. Here's what I'm And that's part of it, but what's the predicate question? Why? If I don't understand the why, then I'm not going to listen to the what. And that's fundamentally the problem with the Vallis candidate, the campaign and the candidacy. There is no stickiness. There's no widespread understanding of the why. And don't say save our city. It's got to be, it can't be cliche. 
It's got to be something that people actually like they can grab onto. And I don't think Vallis gives people handles to grab onto. So he to me, that's the um, equation he has to solve between now and February 28th. And if he's in the runoff between certainly between February 28th and April 4th. Where's the com? Where where's the the details about uh, what he did in Philadelphia and New Orleans? Where are surrogates for him from those cities? Democrats saying Paul Vallis was instrumental in this, and Paul Vallis was instrumental in that, and we would and these kids are benefiting, these families are benefiting because of what Paul Vallis was part of doing in New Orleans or Philadelphia as well as Chicago. Well, what he did in Chicago, he started the IB programs at Amundsen, at Lincoln Park, and at other schools. So families who couldn't get into selective enrollment schools because it's harder to get into there than it is to get into an Ivy League college um, had another choice. So I appreciate that. A lot of people don't know about that, that he started the IB programs. Well, that's an example of what I'm talking about. Give me something that is tangible and relatable, not a five-point plan of what you're going to do uh, administratively. Give me something. This is the, the, this, you know, the program you're talking about, for example. So this is a microcosm of what I would do with CPS, for example, and hear from beneficiaries of what he did do it's always just paul talking about paul's plans okay so you want to see a more uh, i don't know in-depth interview or just a campaign commercial that shows this is the results of my work i helped this family or they could just talk and say this i is want what paul to him did. to answer the why question okay. i want some texture to his can candidacy i want some humanity to his candidacy. And I'm not saying that, that you know, Paul Vallis has no humanity. I'm saying he presents as a one-dimensional technocrat. I'm not saying that's who he is. I'm saying that's how he presents. Okay. And this is why he is struggling to break out from a dismal field of candidates. Particularly, one is a career hack who's associated with scandal now and doesn't know what to do, Chewy. And the other is about as popular as Lyme disease. She is upside down with every demographic in the city, even uh, black voters slightly. And yet uh, there she sits. You know, this to me is as somebody who's not new on the scene, but could present a new perspective, a new path to a city that majority thinks is not going uh, not on the right track certainly doesn't feel safe you have to you can't just i will make things safe i will uh, hire more police i will back the police yes good that's the starting point actually it's not even the starting point that's the what that's that's the do i trust him to do these simple commonsensical things that obviously any commonsensical person would do well, but a lot and, of the other candidates are the defund the police crowd. So. Stop talking about the other candidates. This is a Paul Vallis problem. Yeah, he's going to hire we, more police officers. We, underst we understand what the other candidates are, most uh, with the exception of Willie Wilson. We understand. This is like, well, if you're not with Paul Vallis, then you're uh, with one some socialist. No, I'm not. <laughs> no, I'm not. Uh, except for the sort of, you know, argument I made about maximum punishment. It's got to get worse for 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 more people, apparently, just like in Illinois generally. I'm saying uh, you have to establish trust 
and interest before people will believe you when you say, I'm going to hire more cops, I'm going to back the police, I'm going to institute X reform and Y reform and Z reform, and we're going to reorder the patrols and all the intricacies of actually managing the city. You don't get there with people until they say, this is a guy I want to go to war for. This is a guy I believe in. This is a guy I trust. And what people are mainly saying right now, this is a guy who's not Lori Lightfoot. And that's not going to be enough in a, in a runoff. I'm telling you right now. So you can dismiss it and you can just uh, Paul Vallis or bust and blah, blah, blah. And I don't want to hear any noise, just like people want to do. They get very tunneled when uh, they have selected a candidate and anybody dare criticize their candidate. Go ahead. I'm used to it. But I'm telling you right now, he will not get home in on April 4th if he gets to February, if he gets to March 1, for that matter. He will not get home on April 4th running the campaign that he is running right now. John in Wakanda, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Dan and Amy, thanks for taking my call. I'm going to just rattle off. I agree with everything you're saying, Dan. It's really frustrating to watch. Uh, if I can just rattle off a couple of points. The only one I can have uh, any uh, can compare it to is the gubernatorial campaign. That was heavy on TV as to top down. I think his name ID is out there, but he relied on the, the ward organizations at that time, Madigan, 19 Ward. Now it's a different age of communications. Lori is still in it because of ward organizations. Let's just not let's just be clear on that. And they're going to kick in mm -hmm. with um, with um, I believe whatever they're whatever they're worth. You still have workers. Lori's putting it into Tony. Gonna, they're going to rally around the flag. Willie put his money into radio ads and probably ground operations. Maybe he's got more structure now, um, but it's still a racial election. And if I can give you a quick story, when I was in college, it was college students for daily. We had a thing set up in Circle campus, and Harold was walking through, and he's like, run, Richie, run. And he, that's what he told us. And it was true because the more Richie ran, it split the white vote. And this is going to be a run, Brandon, run, run, Lori, run. He'll get to the runoff, but I don't believe, unless he gets surrogacy, which means people going door to door, he's not going to win. Thanks for the call, John. I'm worried about Brandon Johnson sneaking in somehow. And if he's in a runoff with Paul Vallis, oof. I, I don't see it. Uh, okay. I, I, and I hear a lot of chatter about Brandon Johnson because he's got CTU's backing. Um, I think much like the vaunted ward organizations, CTU uh, is a bit of a paper tiger. Um, uh, they're, they punch way above their weight because of press coverage. Oh, I know. I, I think mean, most of these and most of these ward organizations are a shadow of their former selves. And I don't think I don't really think Lori Lightfoot has foot soldiers. I think she's got identity, uh, you know, in, in insular identity cohorts. You got your uh, uh, Laura Ricketts, you know, p p heading her finance campaign and providing some of the, uh, the the financing and the support from the the elitist LGBTQ crowd in the city, and she'll get some of these. Mercedes Marxist on the lakefront, and she'll get a portion, you know, she'll get a sliver of the black vote that's going to be cut up a lot of different ways with as many black candidates as there are. And you'll, I mean, because the racial politics persists. But it's not because anybody has, you know, uh, 
serious foot soldiers. I mean, Chewy probably has as many as anybody just because he has SEIU. Right. Um, but, but I, you know, I, I don't. I just don't get a sense that there is, uh, and maybe this will change over the next four weeks, that there is a real uh, push to die on the vine for Lightfoot or for Garcia, at least un- until the runoff. And then you'll see public sector unions, if it's Vallis versus one of those other two candidates, then you'll see the public sector unions close ranks, and then there will be a full-on assault. And this is part of my point. Paul Vallis, this campaign he's running, they are not ready for it. And And four weeks is a short period of time to go from the runoff to the election. Right, and early voting, folks, starts Thursday, so two days from now. Um, by the way, uh, response on the IB program, and you know more about this than I do, but there's disagreement. The IB program results are dismal. What a waste of money. We should have stayed with honors AP or dual enrollment or we, dual we credit still, programs. We still have those, too. <laughs> you, you, can still, you, you can choose from those three different programs. Because yeah. one of my sons dropped out of IB this year, and now he's in dual credit and AP honors. So I don't know what that person's texting you, but... Hmm. Okay. Paul well, Vallis is my hero. <laughs> yeah, right. I understand. Uh, all genuflect at the, uh, at the in the house of Vallis. But well, he's supposed uh, to be on tomorrow, so either tomorrow or Thursday. So you, I will be ready with. I'm sure you will be ready with money questions for him. Well, I mean, I'm just gonna. I'll say the same things to him that I'm saying right now. I mean, well, right. I, you know, uh, and I've said some of these things to him before, but we'll see. I, I just, I just don't see how you look at this landscape. And you see where he's at and you get a sense of the tenor of the race and you say, uh, we're right where we want to be. This is going very well. Uh, Paul Vallis in this field, as crowded as it is, should be leading the pack by some margin and building. And what I see right now is what I said yesterday. It's just your classic racial politics in the city and just race and and gender, sexual orientation, affinity politics. And Paul Vallis is not going to win that contest in a general election. He's not. I don't know how he anybody thinks he is. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. You've made the switch, and it feels so good. You've switched to Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer.
top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Kamala Harris was in Tallahassee over the weekend to uh, give a pro-abort speech to a bunch of pro-aborts on the occasion of the, uh, well, per the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision as the March for Life was going on in D.C. Yeah, to counter the March for Life. They can't get all the attention, so we have to take some. And uh, among other things, she had this to say, invoking our founding documents like the Declaration of Independence. The promise we made in the Declaration of Independence that we are each endowed with the right to liberty and the pursuit of happiness. We are each endowed with the rights to liberty and the pursuit of happiness. I think she left some things out. I don't. Uh, yeah, let me let me see if I can recall. Uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator. That's left out with certain inalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That secure these rights, governments and institutions among men, driving their just powers from the consent of the governed, and so forth. Uh, creator is out and right to life is out. Just thought you should know. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. Do you think she was just absent-minded because she has a little bit of the Biden? Um, or do you think she did that purposely? You know, it's, it's, it's a good question. It's, it's always when you're dealing with uh, an ideologue who's also an idiot – it's uh, difficult to know if they're just being ideological or they're just ignorant. I, I, I take your point. It's a, it's a difficult intersection to navigate when you have that, those combinations at play, that combination at but she play. Should, it's so simple, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Is it simple? Everybody knows that. <laughs> I mean, uh, I don't know. Creator, Notably ignoring it, I don't know. The creator is also offensive, yeah. sure. Well, I mean, you know. There's a lot of uh, reconfiguring of the English language and of uh, English literature and of scientific literature. So why not the founding documents? Ari Fleischer was on with Hannity last night. And uh, he gave an appropriate reaction to these obvious omissions. Um, But he said something more, uh, larger, about the issue of abortion and the right to life in a political context still as we still are wrestling with the postmortem of November 8th midterms here's what he said well it's also been misrepresented in the media media as Kellyanne pointed out that only wants to call one side of this debate radical or extremist and the Democrats when it looks at late-term abortion and several of their other procedures they are the real extremists on this but I also do caution Republicans not to play into that there are an awful lot of young people particularly young women college educated women who look at this and say there's a reasonable middle Maybe in the first trimester, maybe in those first 15 weeks, abortion can be legal. But after that, no, it shouldn't be legal. And if Republicans talk in absolute abolitionist terms, that's a problem for the Republican Party. I think like most Americans, there's a sensible middle ground here that respects life, but also doesn't scare people out of the party. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. Uh, Republicans shouldn't talk in absolutes about uh, the right to life. Uh, We need to forge some 
responsible middle ground that uh, doesn't frighten college-educated women. You agree? Is that right? Democrats uh, talk in absolutes. Abortion on demand, all nine months, taxpayer-funded, as Ari Fleischer just mentioned. Uh, partial birth, live birth, live birth abortions. They couldn't be more absolutist on the topic. Republicans, however, can't be absolutist. Got to forge a middle ground. The right to life is important. It's an important principle upon which to stand, but you have to forge a middle ground. Hmm. Anything troubling to you about that statement? Got this. Uh, we talked about this a bit uh, at the end of the show yesterday, per uh, uh, Hall of Famer Tony Dungy's comments uh, at the March for Life over the weekend, and um, which gave a great speech, gave a great talk. Tony Dungy did, and then the question, and I was sort of making the point that um, there needs to be more collaboration with sort of the coalition partners, if you will, on the center right when it comes to advancing the flags for respective issues. So, for example, those who are really focused on protecting people's individual Second Amendment right to protect themselves need to also be present and accounted for when it comes to those who are focused on First Amendment rights like freedom of conscience or uh, other policy issues like school choice. We need to have more cross-pollination of constituent groups. I get this response uh, from a listener uh, yesterday. Uh, I've been listening to your show for some time and think you're a brilliant man, of course, yes. Right. Enough about me. What do you yeah. think of me? Please. That's mainly why I'm reading. This, yeah. Okay. You know. That's why we're doing yeah. this. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh huh. But no, he he goes the comments. Your comments at the end of the show regarding pro life puzzled me. Just to be clear, I'm a strong pro life advocate. But what I took away from the anticipated failed right wing election wave from last fall was that even without a strong support position for life, following off the Supreme Court decision, any assumed association with pro life did not go well for the GOP, and that court decision was largely to blame for the lukewarm results. My takeaway, this is not a country I grew up in. These are, there are not enough Christians with morals and values to force this change you're looking for. All the data I see suggests Christianity is in steep decline, and many of those who call themselves Christians are pro-choice. What we see is the ultimate prevailing attitude of our sick and ignorant voting public. I wish I had your optimism. Huh. Hmm. Um, I, you know, it's, I, it's difficult to disagree with his description of the landscape, but does that mean we should heed... Ari Fleischer's words there about forging this middle ground. Uh, Why do we have to forge a middle ground? Well, Why does yeah. the onus always, you know, and, by the Republicans? And, and, and there's, there's, a, right, there's a lot of questions to that statement that Hannity failed to ask. Um, one is, so Ari, that middle ground, that's as you, the example you gave, uh, prohibiting uh, killing children in the first trimester, uh, after the first trimester, I should say, for, for, forbidding people from killing children after the first trimester. That's middle ground. So you think that's going to bring college-educated women into the Republican Party? Is that their position? Those 
college-educated women you seek to bring into the party, that's going to defang the Republican Party enough that they'll fold in? Is that what you think? Also, um, golly, the forging of middle ground. I think the Supreme Court did that for us, didn't they? It's a state issue. Oh, yeah. Uh, in Illinois, you want abortion on demand, all nine months, taxpayer-funded, including uh, as barbaric a procedures as are committed in the Western world? Well, you can do that in Illinois. In fact, we do do that in Illinois. Right. We chose to do that. And We're an oasis. In, We're an abortion, abortion oasis. Remember that? Yeah, and in, and in Indiana, they chose to do something else. How is that not a middle ground? It's a state issue, not a federal issue. So fight it out at the state level. As opposed to making, uh, taking national a national position that uh, Republican the Republican Party writ large needs to forge some middle ground. How is it a middle ground if we're the only ones that move? The middle ground argument made by Republicans always ends up with Republicans more slowly advancing the flag of the left. Matt's outside. Good morning, guys. Um, I was just going to say that I do, I do personally know some younger um, Republicans or Republican leaning, and they are a little bit frightened about the. I feel like it's changed as far as the abortion issue. I feel like even people who agree with Republicans on economics and policy do sometimes, you know, are more open to the whole abortion issue and do think that there should be limits on it. And I think the problem with the messaging is that Democrats make it seem like it's going to be abolished throughout the whole country. They're not pointing out that it's a state issue. And I also wanted to mention, as far as, like, the middle ground, how many times have we been told as Republicans that we need quality candidates because Democrats are a little bit more likely to vote for the party? And for me, it's like I realize that Republicans were always told that, like I said, that we have to make a choice. And we expect quality candidates and stuff, so I feel like we do have less leeway as far as pleasing the constituents. Uh, thanks for the call. Yeah, I, it's definitely a, a different calculus in putting together the majority coalition on the center right than it is. the. There is no center, just the radical left. There is no center left anymore. It is. Um, yeah, I, I had this a conversation with um, a politico recently about party leadership mm-hmm. on the on the, on this issue too. Since we've had such you know feckless, incompetent, cowardly leadership of the Republican Party for so long in Illinois, and we continue to. Uh, and I said, um, you know, here's the thing that the Republican Party in this state, particularly the donor, most of the donor class, not completely, but most of the donor class, has failed to understand for a long time. You can have pro-choice Republicans in the party. Nobody's excommunicating a Republican who says, I'm pro-choice. You can have moderates in the Republican Party. Nobody is excommunicating moderates. Oh, if you're um, not as, uh, uh, if if you support some sort of, assault weapon ban, you can't be in the Republican Party. I disagree with you, but if you're good on a range of other issues, then, again, nobody's trying to excommunicate you. 
what you can't have are those people in leading the party. You have to have conservative leadership of the party because that's the expression of the principles upon which the party was founded. And if the leadership of the party isn't committed to the principles of the party, then why would anyone else be? And then it becomes, you know, a political version of your cafeteria Catholic. You can have moderates in the party, not in leadership. Because then you don't have a party, you have a warlordocracy. Tim in Woodstock, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, good morning, Dan. You know, I guess the question I'd have for Mr. Fleischer and <clears throat> others that think like that is, well, when, when are these rights endowed then, and who does the endowing? It says it right there in the in the declaration. It says uh, in right, right to life after the first trimester, doesn't? That's isn't that right. what the Constitution yeah. says? Uh-huh. That's right. Yeah. Does, right. Does God get on board? Does our Creator get on board with it during the second trimester? You know, the framers, when they were, their thoughts were that they took this all the way back to the Creator and starting where the rights came from, and they were resisting the idea that any of these rights come directly from the state which is exactly what Ms. Harris believes, right. and, um, and, and that she says they're not just for some, but all, just before she started quoting the, the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence, although improperly, she said, well, I say, really? Well, as it turns out, Ms. Harris and, and her ilk are, are the ones ignoring this concept, because well, you can take a person's life all the way to an unspecified period <laughs> while you mull over whether they're, they're worthy of these rights. Thanks for the call, Tim. Um, also, why can't uh, somebody speak with the eloquence of Tony Dungy? Tony Dungy's speech at the March for Life wasn't political, no. but it was principled. He didn't qualify it. He didn't say um, this is, you know, I, this is much more important than the NFL playoffs, which is, you know, my profession and what I do right now. This, but this is a much more important thing to be at and to be a part of. He didn't say that because I want to ensure that. Uh, unborn life is protected after the first trimester uh, because I want to ban late-term abortions. He just talked about the principle of the, uh, the sanctity of human life from conception to natural death. What is so scary about that? Well, I know, and you say, well, the media, well, the left, I know, the, the media and the left, I repeat myself, they get to play too, and they get to engage in their histrionics, and they get to mischaracterize and demonize. That's what they're going to do. And you know it going in. So what is your approach going to be? To speak in hushed tones? To try to avoid the issue? To be mealy-mouthed about it? To forge a middle ground? And, that, and you think that will accomplish what? And what evidence is there to suggest it accomplishes what you think it would accomplish, what you hope it will accomplish? Right, again, think about this again. The, it is, there's no problem for the left to speak in absolutes, which they absolutely do on abortion, but there's a problem if pro-lifers do. Why? Dan in Algonquin. Hey, Dan. Um, yeah, I totally get your point, but I also see Ari Fleischer's point here. Um, if the Democrats are talking in absolutes and we're not, doesn't that give us an opportunity to grow the party a little bit? Um, you know, you, you hear about these young 
college-educated women. I have an 18-year-old daughter. Um, they tend to come back, you hear, and hate their family because of what they hear in college. It's, it's not going to happen with us because these are um, dinner table issues that we talk about every day. But I, this is an issue where she says it scares her, you know. Um, so this might be an opportunity to get those young college-educated women not to be voting for Democrats 70% of the time. I hear you. Thanks for the call, Dan. And I hear and I'm not like attacking Ari Fleischer. I'm just su suggesting that that's a very superficial analysis. There's a there's a political issue, to be sure. And there's and so there's it's an electoral issue as well. But I suppose if if the woman, if the young woman is scared or women are scared or uh, Hinsdale housemen are scared, then um May, then maybe you can have those dinner table conversations where you destigmatize the issue, where you speak about the humanity, where you ask questions that perhaps they haven't contemplated, where you give them information they certainly didn't get unless they were part of the pro-life club on a college campus where those clubs are even allowed to exist. I mean, the idea that young college-educated women are coming out of college and uh, into the workforce and the corporate America and so on and so forth. And, and they would be these, they would be these, the solid Republican voting bloc, but for abortion. Well, that's silly. That's not true. Uh, and so I'm, I'm going, I mean, I, I, I agree with the incremental approach. It will, and start from where we're strongest, which is popular opposition to, uh, late-term abortions, which is popular support for things like parental notification. But, you know, ultimately you're going to get to the underlying question. And so here again, I say you got to make arguments. You got to lay out the case repeatedly and relentlessly the way that the left repeats uh, their talking points and that uses their scaremongering relentlessly. That's the only way you're really going to change minds. If you start conceding for the purposes of securing a vote, then what are they going to see you as? Transactional. Well, so it's not really a big deal, the life in the womb, because you're willing to concede those in the first trimester. I mean, excuse me, I keep saying it. So you're willing to concede those um, in the first trimester, uh, but not, yeah, in the first trimester, but not, in the second and third trimester. So what's the moral distinction there? I mean, you know, I there are arguments to be made, like the heartbeat laws that have been passed. I understand. But, um, you know, a concept so simple that even Bill Burr can get it, uh, as he did in his recent stand-up routine, uh, stand-up special at um, uh, in Colorado, Red Rock, where he, so, you know, just let me let me understand something. Like, you know, uh, that uh, that mass of protoplasm in a woman's stomach, if you don't do anything, that that that's going to turn into a baby. That that will come out a baby. That's not going to come out an oven, right? So, you know, there's an argument to be made, and then a moral challenge to be issued. And isn't that what you would want to do with your daughters or people in your life that you care about? college educated or not challenge them to be better challenge them to un have a, have a more complete understanding of a particular issue
Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Connect with Dan and Amy using the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. America First with Sebastian Gorka. Today at 3, right before Sean Thompson at 4 on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. You want to know what half the state of Illinois and probably, I don't know, 60% of the Chicago metropolitan area thinks? Be ready, get ready to be depressed. Uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris sat down for their customary box lunch, and uh, there, there happened to be cameras there that caught it. I can't believe there are cameras. Oh my, it was so organic and natural. Yeah, and in the interest of transparency, they released this video oh. of them having their box lunch because that's what they do. They're transparent. Take a listen to their review over their box lunch because yeah. they're, you know, regular they're lunch like pail and house coat kind of people. But they have people serving them lunch, but that's all right. But, yeah, the they're re- celebrating their two years, what they accomplished. That's right. Yeah. All right. Okay. Hey, team. Hi, guys. How are you? What do you think? I think we're off to a pretty good start. I think we're off to a great start. Hard to believe it's two years, huh? Well, just remember where we started and all that was happening in our country. And I think the thing that has motivated us is the resilience, the determination of the American people. Yeah, they stuck with us. I I wish people could see what I see sometimes. I've been in the Oval Office with you when the cameras are there and mostly when the cameras are not. And what you have singularly done based on who you are, and I mean this in all sincerity, to bring together nations, allies in the world, and you bring folks together in a bipartisan way, uniquely. Well, you're you very You've been gracious. an incredible leader these last two well, years. I really think, as you've heard me say, foreign leaders, there's never been a good bet to bet against America. Yeah. We created almost 11 million jobs, 750,000 right. manufacturing jobs. Think about that and on top of capping the cost of insulin at $35 a month, what we've done, we have created more small businesses in the last two-year span than any two-year span in history. I feel good. And look, we're in a situation as well where we've kind of united the world in a way it hadn't been for a while. And I think people are starting to realize that what you and I have been saying, there's not a damn thing we can't do if, in fact, we do it together. More African Americans have health care, more women are employed in decent jobs. And how about the fact that there is now a name that the world knows, and the name is Justice Katanji Brown Jackson? And more right. appellate court female judges are right. black than all other presidents in American history. Yeah. I feel good about where we are. It's really groundbreaking. We've we got, got a lot momentum. more to do. We got momentum. Got momentum. You know, just your typical lunch chit chat. <laughs> yeah, but what haven't they done? Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six type in DA then a quick comment because most Americans are poorer, families are less safe, everything's more expensive than when he took office. Life yeah, is people, harder. You got people smuggling eggs in from Mexico. Oh, I know. I want to buy some. By the way, shh, don't tell anybody. <laughs> yeah. An egg shortage, but the world knows the name Katanji Brown Jackson. Now the world doesn't know what a woman is anymore, but at least they know that name. That's a good point. Yeah, they're just like me and you, Dan. Because <laughs> we sit down and review. You know, we've been together five years. We sit down like that and talk. Yeah, yeah. What we've we accomplished. We regale each other with our collective <laughs> accomplishments. 
<laughs> and we're not done yet. Though, it's just like you do at a lunch with colleagues. We got momentum, and you know the listeners have stuck with us. Yeah, we've united the uh, I don't know conservative talk world or some such. The I mean they're just they're just so delightful. And again, just remember the person who lives next door to you. If you live in Chicago, in mm-hmm. the Chicago metro, probably the next two people that live next door to you. If you're listening to the show, believe every word that those two said, including Kamala Harris's statements that followed the phrase "with all sincerity." Because if there's one thing Kamala Harris is, yeah, it's, it's sincere. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. it was very cringy to watch that, and then I just thought, you know what? I'm just gonna have a good laugh and keep <laughs> this thing going. It was fantastic. It's on Twitter if you want to see it too, and they, you know, just. Two best yeah. friends sitting down for some some lunch. Just a you know, just a sandwich and a bag of chips, uh, iced tea. <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh. uh, they are they are really, clueless. They're really a pair. Yeah, the greatest meeting of the mind since Jefferson dined alone. That just happened, and we were lucky enough <laughs> that there were cameras there. Uh, I mean, what what are the odds? How out of touch are they? I mean, really, <laughs> highest inflation in forty plus years. Gas prices not going down anytime soon. Uh, but they sit there and celebrate because they're just like you and me. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because gas prices have ticked up a bit. Yeah. Uh, Jennifer Granholm, she is the kooky energy secretary from Michigan. Uh, she um, had to field a question uh, uh, at uh, Press Avail, she did, from a Fox Business reporter named Edward Lawrence because gas prices have ticked up again. You may have noticed, mm-hmm. even though it's winter. And uh, one wonders, the obvious question, a lot of credit was taken when gas prices decreased after they had spiked to historic highs. Now, does Biden get credit for the increase? So gas prices are now up 33 cents over the past month. Um, the president took credit for the prices coming down. The Strategic Petroleum Reserve, as you mentioned, is no longer releasing. Does the president get credit for the price of gas going up? Well, it's obviously based upon international and climate events. So, for example, winter storm Elliott pulled 2 million barrels off the U.S. market because of refineries that went down. That crimp in supply causes prices to go up. What happens in China? Are they going to be opening up soon? Is there expectations regarding an increase in demand? That is something that happens on a global market. The whole point of this is that this strategic petroleum reserve is a tool that we have, that we can control. We may not be able to control the weather. We may not be able to control what happens at OPEC Plus or in China, but we can control what we have access to. And that's why this tool is so incredibly important. Yeah. So, no, he doesn't get blamed for when gas prices go up just when they when they decrease. And, of course, um, markets have nothing to do with the decrease they only have something to do with the increases gotcha okay all right everybody got where, where's dessert oh yeah i'm sure he's getting ice cream uh-huh yeah what kind of ice cream yeah tom oswego you're on chicago's morning answer good morning Amy. I, I, I just cringe after listening to that that these are the officials we're elected in this country they've got to be the most stupid people in among the populace and, and I wish somebody would ask President Biden, out of the 11 million jobs you created, what did you do to create those? I know what the answer is. We opened up the economy. But I'd like to hear somebody, like his, see or hear, hear his answer 
as how he did create those jobs. It's well, yeah. Yeah, what jobs exactly? Thanks for the call, Tom. The other thing I wish politicians, and some Republicans are guilty of this too, that we created 11 million jobs and we created – uh, 750,000 manufacturing jobs. And we and, and also we create we, we, Kamala said we created whatever number she used X amount of small businesses. You created small businesses. The entrepreneur that started the small business didn't create them. And those entrepreneurs who started those businesses who hired people didn't create those jobs. You did. No, you didn't. This is, uh, you know, you didn't build it 2.0. Uh, Kathy Joliet. Morning, Dan. Hi, Amy. So, Dan, you know, when you're talking about our vice president and our president sitting down to their box lunch, please get it right. It's called a Sammy, a pop, and a bag of chips, okay? It's a Sammy. That's what all the little kids call it. It's a Sammy, okay? All right. Very good. All right. Very good. Thanks for the call, Kathy. Um... Vince St. Charles. Good morning, guys. They were rehearsing a scene from the remake of Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> so that's I, so it kind of fit right in. <laughs> and they are really the mm-hmm. two clue, most coolest people I've ever heard in my life. Uh, out of touch with oh, America God. and jobs yeah. and working man and everything else. I'm sorry. Thank Thanks, you. Vince. We got a text message. Skip the plot, guys, and get straight to the sex scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's when they turn the cameras off. Thanks be uh, to God. Uh, yeah, right. So they the left on the cutting room floor was right. when they reached uh, across the table and started making out. Well, in the exchange where do you think I it can win a second term? Oh yeah. And she says, "Well, you know, I don't know. What do you think the chances are? Maybe like one in a hundred, more like one in a million. Uh-huh. Yeah, they cut that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mo and Lions." Hi, good morning, Dan, Amy. Uh, I was waiting for somebody to put that uh, vomit soundbite in when they were having the lunch thing. And uh, I-, I just picture both of their noses growing growing longer than uh, Lori Lightfoot's dong. Uh, and that Jennifer Granholm, did she say we can't control the weather? Right. I thought, she did. Uh, that was that whole Davos summit was uh, they can control the weather. They're working on it. They're not quite there yet. Yeah, thanks for the call. You know why, Mo? Because you're eating too many hamburgers. So if you pitch in a little bit, they control the weather. Thanks for the call. Got a text message from Bob in Buffalo Grove. Created jobs, lies, lies. People are returning to work after losing their jobs due to COVID. Right, so only to be laid off because the Fed has to hike interest rates to stop inflation. Add in St. Charles. Yeah, I think if uh, if they lose their jobs as president and vice president today, they can always get a job as uh, – as actors on the Darman series on YouTube. <laughs> All right, thanks, Ed. Uh, Pat Lockport. Good morning, Dan and Amy. Um, you know, that's what happens when you combine uh, intoxication with abject stupidity. You get Biden and Harris. There's no other way to explain it. And you mentioned iced tea that they were drinking, Dan, you know, if those idiots bottled and sold what they were drinking, oh, man, would we have one hell of a party. You guys have a great day. (laughs) Thanks, Pat. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Hear about the big stories of the day. 
then talk about them. Right here on Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Have you uh, seen or heard the advertisements for the uh, bivalent ba- uh, booster? HHS is, uh, we're just talking about the Biden Kamala Harris lunch for propaganda purposes. That pales in comparison to what HHS has done from the outset of the outbreak. The claim is that the updated bivalent vaccines will improve your protection. If you get COVID again, you could experience even worse symptoms if you don't get that bivalent booster. However, there are some problems. And this isn't me saying it. These are studies. Uh, Alyssa Finley had a good piece in the Wall Street Journal on this. Scientific problems have arisen that call into question the effectiveness of the bivalent booster, something that's not being disclosed by HHS in their advertisements. The way, for example, ironically, drug companies are required to disclose potential harmful side effects of the drugs they market, aren't they? As uh, Finley writes, the virus is evolving much faster than the vaccines can be updated. That's one problem. Second problem, vaccines have hardwired immune systems to respond to the original strain. So we churn out fewer antibodies that neutralize variants targeted by the updated vaccines. Third problem is antibodies rapidly wane after a few months. Two studies in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, earlier this month show that bivalent boosters increase neutralizing antibodies against the BA4 and BA5 variants, but not significantly more than the original boosters. In one study, antibody levels after the bivalent boosters were 11 times as high against Wuhan as the, the original variant as against the BA5 mutation. The study's findings contradict November press releases from Pfizer and Moderna asserting that their bivalent uh, boosters produce a response four to six times that of the original boosters. These claims are misleading. Neither vaccine maker conducted a randomized trial. Right. Did they do test eight mice? Right. They tested the original boosters last winter, long before the BA5 variant surge. And four and a half to six months after trial participants had received their third shots. The bivalents, by contrast, were tested after the BA5 variant began to surge nine and a half to 11 months after the recipients had received their third shots. A longer interval between shots would increase the antibody boost, uh, so would a prior infection with the variant. In other words, people who received the bivalent boosters in August would have been primed to produce more antibodies in response to the BA5 variant. Um, This is um, not inconsequential because as people are trying to make decisions about what makes sense for them and their family members, it's unhelpful when both drug companies and government agencies like HHS are effectively conspiring to provide inaccurate, deceptive, use the adjective of your choice, information. as she uh, concludes her piece, COVID vaccines mitigated severe illness while most Americans gain immunity through natural infection. 
which substantially boosts protection. There's a growing consensus we still need better vaccines and treatments to protect those still at risk, but we also need honest public health leaders, don't we? <laughs> but we also need honest public health leaders. Well, that is in uh, exceedingly short supply and right. continues to be all of this talk. And we had this conversation with Neil deGrasse Tyson last week, all this talk about um, uh, humility and what we don't know, if only uh, he suggested we were seeing such conduct from our public health leaders, but we've seen very little of that, and we continue to lack it. For more on this and related topics, we're pleased to be joined again by Jennifer Say. Uh, you may remember her. We had her on the show when uh, her book came out. She was a former president of the Levi's brand until she dared to question corporate COVID orthodoxy at San Francisco's public schools, and then she wasn't with Levi anymore. She's the author of the book, Levi's Unbuttoned, The Woke Mob Took My Job But Gave Me My Voice. And uh, it sounds like from her Twitter feed, she's got a documentary, a documentary afoot on uh, the impact that the school lockdown, school closures had on kids during the pandemic. Jennifer Say, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me again. Yeah. Good morning. Glad to have Good you. Glad morning. to see that you're still using your voice now that you got it. I'm trying. I mean, there's nothing to stop me now. I don't have to be careful or hedge my words, although, you know, one might argue you shouldn't have to do that, even if you are employed with a company. One might argue that. Um, so I see from your uh, Twitter feed that uh, you, uh, you you tell the world, I'm gathering photos and videos of kids in Zoom school and, and during closures and lockdowns. Why? Well, I'm making a documentary, as you mentioned. We've um, filmed almost all of it. Uh, we we want to create a record of what happened to children and families across the country who were shut out of school. You know, school schools across the public schools across the country closed in the middle of March 2020, pretty much all of them. Uh, of course, most governors said, you know, two weeks to slow the spread, three weeks. And a year later, half of America's public school children, 25 million children, mm. were still in disrupted schooling. And what did that do to them? I mean, what, from well, making this documentary, what have you learned? Well, I mean, you know, the headlines can't really capture it. Uh, and we've all seen the headlines at this point in terms of the learning loss, which is real, um, no matter what, you know, some folks some folks claim. But, you know, children have, have fallen well behind um, a far higher percentage than were behind before. And, of course, it's the low income, the black children, the brown children who are more likely to be in urban public schools who have fallen the furthest behind. So you have learning loss, kids not able to read, um, children in third grade unable to read entirely. Um, and we know that if you cannot read by third grade, your your chances of actually graduating from high school are severely diminished. So this has real long-term impact. The mental health impacts kids are suffering from anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, um, uh, absenteeism is at an all-time high. There are schools in San Francisco where chronic absenteeism is 90%. Wow. Can you imagine that? 90% of the students are absent more than 10% of the time. They're not going to graduate. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. And so, you know, as we are living through this moment where people are trying to change the narrative 
and say, okay, we shouldn't have set the schools, but the kids are okay. And, you know, it's no one's fault. We were doing the best we could. That's not true. <laughs> you know, yeah. it is someone's fault. There needs to be accountability. And we want to have a record of what happened because as we tell these stories, the other story that is the is the way that parents and doctors who pushed back on the narrative were silenced and censored. Yeah, I, I read the uh, piece you wrote for the Brownstone Institute uh, last month, and from um, what I gathered from that piece, you have a lot of, of families, moms and dads you spoke to for this documentary. And it seems to me that, you, that that's an important piece of it, the storytelling to underscore the statistics. Uh, I mean, we had some high-profile cases in Chicagoland, as every place did, you talked about yeah. suicidal ide- uh, suicidal ideation. We had uh, a uh, standout football player in a suburban school named Dylan Buckner who committed suicide, and that really brought the wow. uh, the issue of uh, the mental impact the lockdowns were having on kids to 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 the forefront. Yeah. Here made it real, and so uh, just some of what you gathered from talking to uh, parents around the country about impacts. Well, I mean, we're trying to represent a range of stories. So, you know, we have a couple kids in one in San Francisco, one in New York from, you know, lower income families. Sports were canceled for two full years while the private schools continued to play. So these kids lost any opportunity to play their sport, get recruited for college. These kids don't have the means. Their families don't have the means to pay for college. Um, And, of course, the kids who do have the means were permitted to play and get recruited. So... You have these kids, you know, from lower income families, sports was a kind of way out and a way up who now have a very uncertain future. Um, We do have one family who lost a child to suicide, another who lost a child to an accidental drug overdose. We have children um, with uh, physical and mental and emotional disabilities that weren't offered the services that the state is required um, to offer them. And a young woman in Oakland, California, who suffered severe mental health impacts and actually was in the hospital for over four months. So, you know, and then there's the everyday harms, which is just kids fell behind, suffered, you know, low grade to moderate depression. So, you know, everything from the most extreme examples to the everyday examples, because, you know, there was no protecting kids from this isolation. There just wasn't. And I'll tell you the day after Dylan Buckner, the person Dan was just talking about, the high school student, committed suicide. Two days later, they let sports come back. I mean, with heavy wow. restrictions, you could you know couldn't only play conference games and no state playoffs. And, wow. You know, they still denied kids a, a season. But one thing about sure. COVID, I think we kept telling our kids, stop, you know, please don't be on your phone too much. Don't be on your phone too much. Now, right. they, now they are addicted to their phones, and I really think it's yeah. a problem. They don't know how to communicate with other people, to communicate with adults. And, and yeah, this is going to be a big problem coming up. It's a, it's a great point. One of the things we've heard from teachers in middle schools and high schools is, you know, kids are emotionally dysregulated. There's violence in the hallways, fights breaking out all the time. There's a middle school in San Francisco called Everett that a child almost died um, because of a fight in the hallway. This is a middle school. You know, this is like a 12 or a 13-year-old kid. They just don't know how to interact. You know, they're and they're depressed and angry and they don't know why and we haven't helped them reintegrate we just sent them back with all these weird restrictions um so yeah the kids are you know and and people say well my kid was fine well fine good for your kid not every kid was and we have an obligation 
to this generation of children. And even if it's 10% that are not fine, that is a huge percentage. If it's 10% that drop out of high school that wouldn't have, that is a huge percentage that is now set up for you know, lower earning potential, potentially ending up in prison, all of these adverse outcomes. So it was never just two weeks or two months. This has real lifetime impact for a generation of children. 10%. And no I one's mean, talking about what we do to help them. 10% in K through 12, that's, that's 5 million kids. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a big that's number. It's nothing to scoff at. Um, and um, it, you mentioned talking to teachers and administrators. Have you come across any teachers, administrators, uh, local politicians, state politicians that were all in for the COVIDian uh, strictures <laughs> that have said, you know what, we got it wrong? Has anybody, have you heard anybody say that? No. No. I, I mean, no. it's just, Not one it's person incredible. has apologized. I mean, it's incredible to me. I mean, and, and, and all this talk, as you sort of were alluding to at the open about COVID amnesty, um, no, no. No, no amnesty, no reconciliation. No. You know, reconciliation begins with an apology, and I, I haven't heard one. Yeah. No, there's some acknowledgement. I mean, Governor Hochul in New York said, wow, that was a really bad idea, shutting the schools. That's as much as you get. Um, you like know, somebody else did it. She went so far it. as to say, or no one did it. It just happened. COVID yeah, right. Did it it right. was unavoidable. Schools closed and themselves. Like, Not really. They were open across Europe. They were open across the you know, quote unquote, evil red states, and it was fine. Um, but, you know, Governor Hochul just this morning is refusing to rehire unvaccinated health care workers. What? He's saying, you know, yeah, they, I just I just saw it this morning, even though a judge said you have to, um, even though we know that the vaccinated can get and spread COVID, she's doubling down on this policy to prove that she was right before. So, you know, I think it's similar on schools, and that's the problem without accountability is that they would do it again. You know, well, the and this is so aggressive. Yeah, they went. They, there's nothing to stop them from doing it again. Right, and and um, uh, not to jump over, but but corporate America is doing the yeah. same thing. We had a call from a, a woman who applied for a job at McDonald's, and she was going through the application online, and she got to the point about whether or not she was vaccinated, and basic, and she said yeah. she wasn't, and. And the the, uh, the the response from the process was, well, uh, we can stop it here because if you're not essentially if you're not vaccinated, wow. then you're not eligible to work at McDonald's. Yeah, I mean, I know my former company, Levi's, um, they still have a vaccine mandate oh. and I know most universities do. I mean, my son um, is at the University of Chicago and you're. City and they actually, I think they just lifted theirs, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, no, they just but, lifted that in U of I's. But no. you know what? They required the kids to get boosted. So there was a right. whole year of kids that were required. Now all of a sudden, no one has to. And of course, these are the kids, and granted, the risk may be small, but these are the kids, you know, they're 18 to 22. These are the kids that are most at risk from an adverse reaction. Um, and yet, it was mandated. So people aren't really, I mean, Hochul, my point about Hochul is she's doubling down on the vaccine mandate, even though a judge told her you can't do this, even though it's clear that people get it and transmit it at basically the same rate. So she's certainly not going to admit any wrongdoing on schools. And and she sort of can kind of pretend she had nothing to do with it. She was the lieutenant governor. But I mean, come on, <laughs> you know, ridiculous. she did. Is, I mean, is your governor apologizing no 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 that will never happen no that's not happening yeah 
So yeah, he was in the lead. You know, him and Newsom and you know Cuomo. Cuomo they were all out front and sort of requiring all these restrictions. Oh yeah, they saved lives. Um, so you yeah, asked, they, you know, on Twitter to send you videos of kids in Zoom classes. Yeah. I sent you some. My son's the you one did. that's doing the Zoom gym class and how pathetic Awful. that was. And I just, my heart yeah. broke. But I had to record it because I just like, this is so sickening. You know, and then they yeah. told him to go, go run around the block and then come back. But anyway, what kind of videos and, and pictures are you getting from parents? Well, you know, first of all, I've been overwhelmed by the response. And thank you for sending me um, that stuff, Amy. Um, I mean, I'm still going through them, hundreds and hundreds of photos. And they're all just so sad. Mm-hmm. And you look back and, you know, whether it's, you know, young children underneath the desk, there's young children crying, there's teenage children, you know, in the dark, asleep, not, you know, with the screen, you know, the computer shut. There's some pictures that unless you have the explanation, you don't realize how awful they are, Mm -hmm. you know, like a child in a car and you have to be able to see in the background that that's their high school graduation, a drive-through graduation. And, you know, I remember at the time, um, people would say such cruel things to those you know, young people who said, I'm missing this milestone or a graduation or a prom, like, you're so selfish. You're a horrible person if you really think that matters. Mm -hmm. And I just remember being so saddened by it at the time. And I have a lot of those sorts of images, you know, these horrible Zoom graduation kind of things. But what is a young life but the sum of these milestones? We ask them to give them up for two years with no end in sight. So the despair at not knowing when or if you could have a normal life again, that is what comes through in these pictures. Um, just utter despair because they had no, there was no, no right. sense of relief coming. But certain, governors, but certain governors gave end games. I mean, Governor Walt said, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to have sports back. Like He gave them hope or something to look forward to. Our governor right. was a disaster. He was a train wreck. And I brought in study after study on yeah. certain things like, look around us. Everybody's playing football. It's September 2020. Iowa, Indiana, Michigan, Wisconsin, and he just wouldn't have it. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Newsom, which was, he was my governor at the time, was the same. There was no end in sight. I mean, I just shared a photo yesterday because I was going through my old photos. It's um, from October 2020. The playgrounds had been closed for seven months in San Francisco. If you live in the city, you don't have a yard. It doesn't matter how, you know nice your apartment is no one has a yard so you have to go to the playground i have two young children it's a picture of um, my husband and son at a playground we hopped the fence there was no end in sight and a police officer telling them they have to leave now keep in mind and my husband arguing with them because that's what he does i'm taking the photo keep in mind this playground is surrounded by open air drug use it's at the (laughs) civic center in san francisco so those people oh my god that's fine well, but right. You're son, making you're making the drug users feel uncomfortable. They could get oh COVID. Oh my God, that is yeah, an incredible story. Uh, oh um, Je- so Jennifer, what what is the timeline on the documentary? What's the working title? When are we going to be able to see it? The working title is Generation COVID, and we're hoping it. Documentaries take a long time to edit, yeah. so we're hoping by the end of end of this year. But um, really. Right moved by the stories and you know grateful to people like you amy for sharing photos because we really want to show the full range of experience and so things like those and and of course we weren't filming during covid you know so having folks submit pictures and videos is super helpful and and they can submit to you on twitter at jennifer say 
Is that why they do they, it? They can. I also have an email. Yeah, tell me. Uh, Jen COVID at Say Everything. So I'll repost the, the note today so, so people can see it yeah. if, they, if they follow me. Jen COVID at SEYEverything.com. Say Everything.com. All right. Uh, yeah. Jennifer, Jennifer Say, and by the way, not her first rodeo when it comes to documentaries. She uh, is the producer of the Emmy Award Emmy win, winning film Athlete A. Uh, she's a retired member of the U.S. Women's National Gymnastics Team as well. Her book, Levi's Unbuttoned, The Wake, the Woke Mob Took My Job But Gave Me My Voice, and we'll look forward to your documentary, Generation COVID, forthcoming. Jennifer Say, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you both so much. Have a good day. Thanks, you too. And she joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. It's news, opinion, insight. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Insert Democrat Socialist here. Runs the Democratic House law for 30 plus years running. He's promising this and he's stealing that. Where can you get that kind of money? He's using your house like his own piggy bank, gang, 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 gang. You ought to know by now. You can pay off your house here in Illinois. You can never keep up with the taxes. Oh, how it's always been the plan. To have a taxpayer pay, no doubt. Not a matter of if anymore, but when. You're moving out. I said, when you're moving out. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. That theme music means it's time for our weekly confab with Ted Browski, president of wirepoints.org, all things Illinois policy related. And uh, that was a really good commentary by uh, Jeannie Ives. You just heard uh, after Mike Scott's newscast. Perfect uh, segue to Ted. The uh, sale of the parking meters, the sale of future tax revenue, that's daily. That's ROM. Now to Lightfoot with the Chicago Social Bonds. The heists just keep going and getting bigger as the House of Guards, that uh, that is Chicago's finances, gets more wobbly with each passing day. Uh, probably too sophisticated for most of these Democrat socialists to understand, but not too sophisticated for a lot of people leaving Chicago to understand. Ted, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. How, how about that? We, uh, I think we, uh, I can't remember if we talked to you last week before or after our tackling of Lightfoot's Chicago social bonds uh, 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 gambit, but uh, connecting the dots like uh, Ives did in that commentary from the parking meters to to the sale of future tax, uh, sales tax revenue to this gambit by Lightfoot, it really shows you that uh, – new guy just like the old guy for the last 30 years yeah i mean for, for those who, who follow this stuff it's you know it's wide open it's, just, it's obvious what goes on and it just keeps going on and you know this latest version of those bonds where where lightfoot the city is selling future tax revenues right they're giving away the money of the future to try to raise money now to make it quote cheaper today because it's you know if you give away something you get money cheaper uh it, it's you know, in in most places, I, I don't want to use the word criminal. It's just crazy. You don't do that stuff. Um, and but it's just continuation of what goes on. And you know, if anybody saw Brad Johnson's uh, Brandon Johnson's uh, pitch yesterday on how Love he fix Illinois, you know, Love geez, it. Love it. I'm I'm thinking know, about I'm thinking about switching my support from a Triple Threat oh, to Brandon stop. Johnson. He proposed 
a three and a half percent city income tax for people making more than a hundred grand. You know, you know, you know why? Because the flight from Chicago is not going fast enough. Yeah, I mean that's that's how crazy things become. But that's what people buy these days, right? They buy it, and he's going to solve. It's it's a beautiful plan. He's going to solve every problem. Um, he's going to make the rich pay their share. They're going to love that. And not only that, but the rich coming in, you know, on Metro, I'm going to make them pay. You know, these airlines, they're going to make, you know, charge them more for their jet fuel tax, make them pay. We'll have a mansion tax so that when you sell your big mansions in Chicago, we're going to tax the heck out of you. Yeah, yeah. and by the way, really? like exit fees. tax. Oh, yeah. By the way, if you make a hundred grand in Chicago, you're not uh, rich. <laughs> you're rich. Sorry, I have to tell yeah. you that you're not rich. Yeah. Okay. Sure. That's right. Yeah. That, yeah. That's, yeah that's, that's a couple each making fifty grand. Right. It's it's a uh, it's crazy. And so, you know, he's got this whole massive list of taxes. And, uh, you know, that, again, will just chase out, chase out the tax base, ch- chase out the, you know, the, 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 the eventually the corporations. Right. And, you know, McDonald's is warned. I mean, don't be surprised. You know, I remember when when Caterpillar warned it was going to leave Illinois, you know, whatever it was, 10 years ago, maybe a little less. And they finally did. Well, McDonald's you know, made their warning. And, and don't be surprised if this keeps up that they leave. And that's that's a big thing. So, um, you know, this people like Brandon Johnson and others who keep proposing these taxes, you know, tax on the rich, whatever. And then these investments, you know, will continue the destruction of, of Chicago. And, and Dan, as you were saying earlier in the show, you know, the destruction will just happen faster, which which sadly would mean, hopefully, that we we finally have a, a revolt against all these failed policies. But for now, they continue. Well, people seem to be revolting against the gun ban. Another 1,690 plaintiffs have sued or have joined the lawsuit uh, to gun bans in Illinois. Do you think they're going to be successful? Uh, you know, it's hard to say here. Um, I'd like to think that they will be. And, you know, my partner, uh, Mark Lennon, just put out a really a good piece on that. You know, eventually what we need is, is the courts to decide to make, make things clear for, for Illinoisans. But uh, uh, hard to predict, right, and, and uh, you know, how, how far does this have to go? But uh, it's clearly uh, it's clearly just the next move to chase even more people out, right? Now, now you're talking about a different crowd of people who would leave Illinois, right? Uh, Typically, so we're talking about the Chicago crowd, the the crowd around here. Now you're talking about downstaters. Speaking of uh, people exiting, um, uh, updated data on the exodus of school children from Illinois government schools, um, which, as I mentioned uh, prior to you joining us, well, that's good news that at least the parents are taking the kids with them. They're not necessarily leaving them here. <laughs> yeah, that would be the other alternative. Uh, you know, what's, what's not being said, I, was, I looked up the numbers after I saw whoever reported that, um, since 2010, right, so just going back a decade, a little bit over a decade, we have lost in our, in our public schools 218,000 kids. So we used to be at 2.1 million. Now we're below 1.9 million. Um, and that's significant. You know, and, and never mind that the spending continues to go you know, crazy and far, far faster, especially with this COVID money. But uh, you know, the kids are leaving it. And uh, part of that might be, part of, that might be the, uh, the, of course, the population reduction in Illinois and the, and the outflow. outflow. Uh, but part of that might be people just getting out of the schools and trying to find more of the private schools, certainly during COVID. And, uh, you know, you heard Jennifer talk about that uh, just a minute ago. Uh, it's understandable why they're leaving. You know, private schools were staying open and a little bit more open to, to freedom. And uh, the public schools have been, you know, indoctrinating and, uh, and uh, you know, oppressive. It's a national school choice week. Uh, we see uh, legislation afoot in Virginia to expand school choice there. We see uh, some of the opposite things happening uh, under Adams in New York City, under 
Uh, Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear, who's up for reelection this year, uh, he's uh, been trying to cut off funding to charter schools there. What about in Illinois? You know, we have this Opportunity Tax Credit Scholarship Program. Uh, there is a movement afoot for uh, ESAs, education savings accounts, uh, for uh, uniquely talented individuals, uh, kids with uh, uh, disabilities. And um, uh, and and what is going to happen there? Because I know that Pritzker and the Democrat Socialists have sort of begrudgingly uh, kept the Opportunity Tax Credit Scholarship Program uh, in place because, well, because a constituency has built up around it, families that have received scholarships for their kids to go to better schools. What's your prognosis on the extension of that program and any expansion of school choice here? Gosh, you know, um, I, I think, and you know, I, I look at us as well, we need to do a better job of, of really talking about school choice and how how it is expanding in many areas. You just want to mention Iowa. Um, you know, the governor yeah. there is really yeah. pushing hard for a $7,600 education savings account. And, uh, you know, eventually it'd be open to all to all children. And, uh, you know, that's a really big deal. And it's right next door, right? So um, that's what we need to promote. And, you know, we, we've talked about Arizona having their, their um, you know, ESA, ESA accounts for everybody. So, that's the real solution, and I, I, I do like the current uh, proposal we have or the current structure we have in, in Illinois, but it's so limiting the, the, the tax uh, tax credit scholarships. Uh, I don't think the pressure strong enough yet. I think collectively we need to work on that, um, those of us who, who support this. And I think we still haven't broken down how bad. Unfortunately, guys like, again, like Brandon Johnson and others, unfortunately they are supporting the CTU guy, supporting the failure of CPS. And we have to break the system where we have to tell people exactly how bad it is. And, and you know, if the Latinos are who we have to get behind us because they're the growing sector, you know, they, they now almost make up half of Chicago public schools. Um, only one out of every 10 kids in 2022, Latino kids could do math at grade level, right? So that means nine out of 10 couldn't do math at grade level and reading. It's not even two out of 10 who can read at grade level. So we've got massive failure. The black, the black students have even worse performance. So, you know, how the hell we keep having a system that allows that? I mean, they, they perpetuate it. They move the kids through the system. It doesn't matter what happens. They graduate them. It doesn't matter what happens. You know, I just want one point of disagreement with Jennifer Say uh, earlier. Uh, even though the kids can't read, they still graduate. Exactly. Um, they're graduated yeah, right. in Somebody massive numbers from, from all these schools. So, you know, we still have to break down their control of the system and their messaging of the system uh, and, and until we can get to the real school choice. But I think it's there because it's massive failure. We just yeah. have to do a collectively a better job. Of, it's of a, making yeah, I mean, it, and it's it's the failure that happens in a one-party state where the Republican Party has lost the will to participate in any meaningful way because as a super-minority party, this is a obvious play. I oh, mean, it's, it's, it's just it, like, it's, it's like, it's like in Wisconsin where you have – Legislative Republicans in Wisconsin propo proposing to cut the state's income tax, even though they know they've got to get it by a governor that's opposed to it, and they probably won't. But they're staking out ground, and they're saying this is our vision for the state of Wisconsin. Well, that's the same thing the Republican Party could be doing here. Say this is a program th that works in Illinois, the Opportunity uh, Tax Credit Scholarship Program, and school choice works everywhere it's tried. 
And not only does the opportunity tax credit need to be extended, we need to do ESAs, we need to do more. All they need to do is walk through all the data that you guys at WirePoints have pulled together and say, obviously, this is an urgent need to airlift kids out of terrible schools and get them into schools that are educating children. And one way we can do that is empower parents with the resources to make that choice. And yet you hear no uh, uh, collective voice coming from the Republican Party in that direction. And so what happens? Brandon Johnson and all the teachers union flax suck up all the oxygen. That's exactly right. I mean, this is such a such a simple populist play. Uh, and I say play, it's not even a play, right? It's a, it's a populist message. Look, what, what they've managed for you, they, they, the people who've been in charge, right? And it's largely Democrats for, for decades. Look what they've given you. Look what, look what you have right now. And look how they covered up. And the Wall Street Journal did a great job of talking about how Illinois' you know, failures are covered up. Look how they covered up. It's a great message they could have. They could own it because nobody else, nobody else has it. Uh, much like the Wisconsin, uh, you know, idea you gave, they they could use the bully pulpit, whatever small bully pulpit they have, and and send a vision and a message and, and start to start to change the air. But uh, that hasn't happened, and don't hear it happening yet. Ted Dabrowski, president of WirePoints.org, all things Illinois policy related. Ted, thanks as always. Thank you, guys. Thank you, and he joined us on our Turnkey Dot Pro Answer Line. Listen to podcasts of Dan and Amy from the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, we're about to bring you a incredibly disturbing story that is um, in large part the work product of townhall.com investigative reporter Mia Cathal. Uh, she uh, investigated a LGBTQ pedophile ring in suburban Georgia uh, to a gay couple, two men who adopted two boys and set about to sexually abuse them and pimp them out to others to sexually abuse them. And it's not just a graphic story for the sake of being graphic. It also implicates some public policy that needs to be discussed. And they adopted these kids through a Christian special needs adoption agency. Mia Cathal joins us now. Mia, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you for sharing this story. I really appreciate you giving the attention it deserves. Uh, Our pleasure. So uh, tell us about uh, this gay couple in suburban Georgia. Yes, so this couple, uh, the Zulocks, William and Zachary Zulock, uh, they were married men, and they adopted these boys uh, through this faith-based special needs adoption agency in Georgia. And so now, four years later, uh, they've been arrested and they're charged. According to a 17-count indictment, these felony child sex crimes range from incest sodomy to felony prostitution of a minor. So the affidavit, the other kind of court documents, allege that these adoptive fathers um, use their adopted boys to create child pornography and also 
sent out their children to nearby pedophiles. And they were, we're talking third and fourth grade at the time, I believe, and it was years of yeah. abuse. But who, who tipped them off finally and who, who you know, came forward to police to let them know yes, what was one going of the, on? One of the men who were allegedly solicited uh, by the adoptive fathers, he was busted downloading child pornography of the older child. And so police swarmed his house. And during the search warrant that was executed there, he apparently snitched on the adoptive fathers and pointed to where they're located. And that's how we are here today. And you were able to, I guess, I think it was through a family member, get uh, access to jailhouse calls and other documents that really provide a lot of the context and the details, graphic as they are, about what these two men did to these young boys. Yes, this family member um, who spoke out because they're concerned about the children's well-being. They're now back in foster care. It seems that this cycle is continuing because they were adopted from this abusive household as well, it seems, a broken household where their biological parents were addicted to heroin. Then they were placed in this abusive household, child predators. And then now we don't know where they are. We're just praying for their safety and their well-being. And these jailhouse calls seem to shed a light on what the men were thinking. There doesn't seem to be any kind of remorse. They barely even asked about the boys and if they're okay. They seem to be more concerned about themselves and how they're going to be treated in jail. And they looked at... How, how how expansive was this ring because it wasn't limited to their household? Right. There's almost 12 uh, potential co-defendants out there. The one adoptive father admitting to sending the child pornography to less than 12 people. So the district attorney is still uh, investigating these potential suspects. We're circulating the videos of these abused boys. Oh, my God. And I, one thing that I don't understand, they live in such a palatial estate. And the one father, the 33-year-old, he was a government worker, basically worked at DMV. And then the 35-year-old was a banker, not an investment banker, but it seems like a teller. So how were they able to afford that place? Was it possibly from profits off of selling child pornography? That's a question that a lot of the family members are asking now because their house was mysteriously constructed in half a year. Uh, it's in an affluent suburb where other houses are selling for 900000 This was something that was custom built. It was designed by one of the adoptive fathers. And the couple always seemed to tout their wealth. Uh, it seemed like an image of success was very important to them. And so we will see as it plays out in court. For right now, the house has been seized by the state. It's property of the sheriff's office. I believe that the district attorney's office is seeking civil remedies against it. Uh, they were possibly floating the prosecution proceeding forward under the child sex trafficking statute of the state's own RICO Act. So that's something that we'll see more of the details on how sophisticated this operation was. And um, are these two, the uh, adult men here, um, are, are they, do they defend their pedophilia? Are they, is this a case where they're sort of wink, winking and nodding and saying they're minor attracted persons or that uh, minors shouldn't be off limits. I mean, this is sort of the um, the, the, the last frontier in this uh, 
uh, sexual identity politics is mainstreaming pedophilia by term by terming pedophiles minor attracted persons, which we've discussed on this show a number of times. There's there's been out and proud to borrow a phrase op eds and argumentation in favor of pedophiles, and I wonder if that's something that uh, they believed based on what you know or what we know to this point. In their jailhouse tapes, um, as I said, they weren't remorseful at all. It's all boo-hoo kind of uh, sob stories from behind bars. But if you were to look at uh, photos from within the house, they had a lot of pride decor that said love is love everywhere. And that's something that's a mainstream LGBT slogan, but a lot of these self-described minor attractive persons, as you're saying, have hijacked that mantra to believe that it can include the P, include pedophilia. And so I believe they may have been, you know, subscribed to this kind of ideology. Uh, There were a lot of pro-inclusivity posts that you could read between the lines there. So, um, and then I believe in the court documents, it also said that the couple allegedly told their sons, our business is our business. What happens in our home stays in our home. So the kind of intimidation the children felt is unreal. So I, I do believe they may have been leading, leaning towards that kind of um, pro-pedophilia, pro-normalization of sexual attraction to children. Well, it I re- didn't they it admit it, though? Because I, I read part one, two, and three, and I thought one of the suspects admitted to having fondled or touched the older boy. They both did more than that. I know. They did horrible, horrific things that I don't even want to talk about, but it's in the article. But is that true? Yes, yes. There are uh, criminal arrest warrants that say that both William and Zachary have admitted to uh, some of these sex crimes. William admitting to forcing the one child to perform oral copulation on him. Uh, Zachary admitted to being the cameraman, to filming this, and authorities allegedly found a folder on his cell phone labeled us that had videos of William sexually abusing their older child. And um, the the other question, and this becomes a, a, a part of the public policy discussion, how did these two get these boys in the first place, so the adoption process? That's something that you know I'm still trying to understand. How can this uh, licensed adoption agency in Georgia, it's now defunct, it dissolved last year, uh, they didn't see any of the warning signs, and there were more than just red flags. The one adoptive father was previ- previously accused of raping a 14-year-old boy in the same county, in the same jurisdiction as today's case, uh, but accused, no charges but were filed. No, yeah, no char- yeah. accused, but no charges. But the accusation, you would think that would be something that an adoption agency would want to fully explore. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. I don't know, but that would be something that would, I think, set off some red flags. You would think if there's a police incident report that the case is based on, that that could have generated some kind of hit, especially for how egregious the charge was. But the sheriff's office told me they had different investigatory standards back then. Even though this was 2011, we're not talking about 50 years ago, um, but uh, even the district attorney's office said that the investigation was closed without a whole lot of investigation into the matter. Is this uh, now defunct adoption agency also under criminal investigation or the, the principals at that agency? Uh, right now, um, I don't believe any kind of action is being taken against it. There is an Office of the Child Advocate that investigates 
uh, abuse within a child welfare system in Georgia, and I believe a family member uh, may be seeking that route to hold uh, Children's Department of Family and Children's Services accountable, hold All God's Children Incorporated accountable because there was just a lot of negligence uh, in how they failed to protect these children. It's so gross online on the Instagram. I mean, they cover their faces, but they just love the attention that they're getting is adoptive gay fathers. And if this was a conservative gay couple, I think the world would know about this story. But nobody, I mean, you have Atlanta, you have WSBT TV, they, nobody covered the story. It, it didn't even make national news except for Town Hall and the great work that you did. You know, there has been a complete media blackout, and you would hope that these local outlets would have been the first one on the case, especially if it's happening in their backyard. But we haven't really seen anything from uh, AJC, any other kind of prominent outlets in the Atlanta area, given that uh, human trafficking and sex trafficking in general, very big issue in Atlanta. And so for something to happen in the suburbs, to happen in communities and neighborhoods where children go to school is just uh, unbelievable. And, and you said at the outset, I just want clarity that the boys are now back in the state's foster care system, so you don't know where they are? That's correct. Uh, that's as far as any of the other family members know. Uh, the adoptive fathers had to sign over their parental rights at an August 1st hearing, and so for right now they're in foster care, and we're just praying that they've begun to heal. And these two scumbags, are not going to see the light of day, are they? Um, well, it seems that the district attorney's office are really throwing the book at them, which is great. Um, the judge denied them bond uh, because they're deemed flight risk, dangerous to children in the community, at risk to commit new felonies. And so now the district attorney's office is moving to sever them as co-defendants to get them to testify against each other. And so we'll see how that plays out. There's a motion hearing next week. And so we're proceeding forward. So right now they've pled not guilty. And uh, if and when they're convicted, hopefully they'll be uh, in prison for a short period of time because you'll just let them out in the yard and what happens in jail to pedophiles will happen. Um, but I digress. Any reaction from uh, uh, LGBTQ advocacy organizations in the uh, greater Atlanta region? I haven't seen any organizations yet. I've received a lot of emails from the uh, same kind of people cut from that uh, that were upset that I noticed, you know, denoted that they were gay activists, that they were part of the LGBTQ community. Uh, Media Matters wrote kind of a hit piece style story because we dared to report on this. But for right now, it's pretty quiet, even though uh, these LGBT activists, their whole identity is being gay, being pro-inclusivity. But when they're charged with these heinous crimes, all of that just disappears. I would think that uh, Lambda Legal and equality uh, organizations, uh, these gay rights organizations, would want to be first to the microphone to denounce this conduct and separate these two from uh, other gay couples that are, you know, law-abiding and perfectly fine American citizens and so forth. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm interested if you have reached out or are going to attempt to reach out to such organizations for comment. Um, I may I may reach out to the human rights campaign, especially since the couple took a selfie with the boys in front of its headquarters in D.C. And it's the largest pro-LGBTQ uh, lobbying advocacy group in America. And they specifically 
pose near the the gay part of the uh, sign that um, shows all the groups that they represent. And so uh, we'll see if they denounce it as well. But you would think that a lot of these groups would come forward and make the distinction that um, at large the community doesn't prey on children. Mia Cathal is an investigative reporter for Town Hall, townhall.com. Uh, the story we investigated is suburban LGBTQ pedophile ring. Here's what we found. There's four parts so far. We'll uh, continue to follow the story. Uh, great investigative reporting. Uh, Mia, thanks for this, and uh, stay in touch on it, won't you? Thanks, guys. Thank you, and she joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. The more you listen, the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy are our next guests, uh, served in Congress as a representative from the great state of Kansas, also as the CIA director and the Secretary of State under President Trump. He's a West Pointer, I should hasten to add as well. And um, his new book is Never Give an Inch. And I got to tell you, it's an impressive list of people that uh, contributed uh, blurbs for the book jacket from Kathy Ireland to... Yeah, from to, from Kathy Island to, to Cardinal Dolan, the Archbishop of New York. I mean, that is a wide range. That is very impressive. <laughs> Secretary of State Mon- Mike Pompeo, thanks for joining us. That, wow. Uh, it, good catch. That is nice. It's nice to be with you all. Yeah, that's, that's an impressive range of uh, friends you've got there. Um, well, I want to talk about the book and, and about, uh, you know, your handle on the uh, geopolitical environment. But uh, you stirred up a bit of controversy uh, with your book. Uh, Nikki Haley sat down with an interview for Brett Baer uh, last week, and and uh, she was asked about this uh, passage in your book that describes an effort that was afoot in the Trump White House to replace Mike Pence as the VP running mate in 2020. And the suggestion was that uh, Jared Kushner was the one leading this uh, skullduggerous uh, effort and that uh, perhaps uh, uh, Nikki Haley was included in those conversations, which she flatly denied, saying that even in your, in Mike's book, your book, uh, it's just supposition. He doesn't say it actually happened. She denied that she was part of any conversations. So g- give us a, a handle on, on that story and the effort to, the potential effort to replace Pence. Well, Never Give an Inch isn't about palace intrigue. Uh, it's, it's, it's about how we deliver security for the American people. And I, I told that particular story because then Chief of Staff John Kelly, General Kelly, had told me that. And he told me that not because of the palace intrigue, but because we were focused on our mission. And every U.S. ambassador, including the U.S. ambassador of the United Nations, has a responsibility every minute to be working on that. And uh, there were important things that went on in this administration. I am proud of the work that we did. While we didn't get it right every day, uh, I can assure you America was safer then than it is two years two years later under the handling of President Biden. And it took all four years to get it right. And my, my observation there is that people who weren't on the team hurt President Trump and me's ability to keep Americans safe. If you were focused on something else, if you were about yourself, if you couldn't stick it out, if you if you if you decided to leave the administration because it was just too hard, um, that's just in my judgment unacceptable. Um, we had a responsibility to continue to do our work, uh, 
There were a handful of us that stuck it out the entire time in the face of an onslaught from a progressive media. Uh, and I regret that so many didn't. They decided to protect themselves at the expense of the country. Well, as she is a potential presidential candidate in 24, was she one of the individuals, Nikki Haley, who was not on the team? Yeah, I mean, that, that's what that story would tell. And I, again, I wasn't in the okay. room. It's what General Kelly told me. Kellyanne Conway has confirmed that's what she thinks happened, too. But be, be that as it may, um, I know this much. Um, I was being told, as were so many, run. Everything Donald Trump touches turns to dust. Everyone around him gets blown up. Uh, you should leave, Mike. Your, your reputation's intact. Go. I, was, I didn't think about that for a second, and too many people did. There were people who wouldn't join the administration because, quote, Donald Trump, end of quote. Uh, this wasn't about Donald Trump. This was about serving America. And I had a 1,000 days as Secretary of State, even fewer than that as CIA director, and I treasured that privilege every single minute and tried every single minute to do my best for the American people. Well, then what do you think or how would you describe what happened on January 6th? Was that an insurrection? Uh, no, it, it wasn't an insurrection. You had rioters. Those rioters should be prosecuted, just, just like the rioters who rioted in uh, Portland, in Minneapolis, or in Atlanta this past week. Uh, we should prosecute people who violate the law. I'm, I'm a conservative. I believe in the rule of law. Uh, they, they should be prosecuted. Uh, and on January 6th, uh, it was a bad day. It was a bad day for America, but it ended in a way that was noble, completing the constitutional process. And uh, w- with respect to... The politics still, and then we'll we'll get to some geopolitical stuff, I promise. Um, You're uh, looking at a run for presidency in 2024 as well, as as I understand it. Uh, Do you stay in contact with President Trump? Uh, Have you had discussions about what 2024 might look like? Uh, I don't talk about the things we've talked about, but I've spoken to the president a a bunch of times since, uh, gosh, two years now uh, since we left. I've spoken to him many times. And does he say, hey, hey, Mike, what's the scuttlebutt I hear? Right? No, no. I mean, what's uh, so you're not going to tell us. He, I got it. But I, I promise you, President Trump's watching. That much I can assure you. He's, he's, he's watching all the noise. He's watching. He's made a couple of comments. Uh, one of them, I, I, you know, I, just, I think odd. He said, boy, it'd be disloyal if someone like Mike ran. The, the truth is, um, it's not about loyalty to any individual. My, my duty was to the country. Right. And I think uh, I think the work that we did was fantastic. I am grateful to President Trump for the privilege that he gave me for those four years. But if one comes to believe they are the right person for the moment. They have a responsibility to actually go make that case. And then, goodness gracious, let the good people of Iowa, South Carolina, New Hampshire go sort it all out. What was the interaction between you and President Trump like with uh, so many of these global challenges that you faced and, and, and the accomplishments that occurred, uh, the Abraham Accords and uh, uh, the, the, the posture towards uh, communist China. Well, how, how was that interaction? Oh, goodness. Um, you know, I wrote about this a fair amount and never give an inch. I, I wrote about the relationship that he and I developed. Um, I, first got to, I first got to meet him for the very first time. I, I never met Donald Trump uh, until the day I interviewed at Trump Tower uh, to be the CIA director. And uh, then when he chose me and then ultimately decided to give me a, a second opportunity, Secretary of State, uh, every day I told him exactly what I thought, how I thought about it. If we were getting it wrong or needed to fix our policy, I tried my best to get us headed the right direction. But in the end, he was president of the United States, and I, my mission was to execute the things he promised the American people he would deliver. And I think as you read Never Given Inch, you will see that we, in nearly every case, pulled that off. And, and he was receptive to your advice and counsel? Yeah. And sometimes he thought, no, Mike, you're just wrong. And we'd talk about it some more. 
I, I recount a handful of stories in the book where uh, I came in and had a different view than his, and we said, "All right, let's go, let's go do that." And uh, that's that's exactly how it ought to be. He gave me all the space I needed as Secretary of State and as CIA director to take these men and women at CIA and get them out doing good work to keep you and every American safe. Well, you know, CIA, That's it's interesting because, of course, you inherited that from the likes of John Brennan uh, previous to you, and we've seen his performance over the last four or five years. Um, what was the CIA like when you got there, and uh, how would you describe the change, if there was a significant change that occurred from the time you were there to, to moving over to Secretary of State? It had been politicized by Director Brennan. Uh, they had gone around the analytic process to produce this a report that was grounded in the Steele dossier that we now know for sure was uh, unvalidated in every dimension. Uh, they'd had McKinsey come in and do a study. They were not taking any risk and, in, and never give an inch. I talk about this. We put the CIA back in the game of conducting espionage around the world in ways that matter for the American people. I am deeply confident that the work I did with my friend Yossi Cohen, the former director of Mossad, the Israeli intelligence service, and, and these stories are great because these stories tell about what young men and women that join the CIA can do to keep our nation safe. And they are out there working in clandestine places all across America even today. I pray that they're safe. And I hope that my successor, Director Burns, is continuing to allow them to go out and do these important things. I think he is. I think he's a good man. And I'm counting on that. And so is every American. With respect to um, the handling of classified documents, since that's been all the rage the last six months, um, is, is there anything surprise you about uh, the raid on Mar-a-Lago? Fast forward to the last three weeks of disclosures from the Biden administration. Well, I'm surprised that so many senior leaders have so many classified documents, at least apparently, that are not where they're supposed to be. And as I've said broadly, put them back. If they're classified, get them where they're supposed to be. I don't care if you're a Democrat, a Libertarian, a Republican, put them back where they're supposed to be. Uh, the Justice Department needs to investigate this. It ought to do so equitably. The fact that they raided the president's home in Mar-a-Lago and have handled the Biden thing completely differently suggests that there is enormous bias in how they're going to handle these. Uh, but I handled hundreds, thousands of classified documents during my time both as a member of Congress when I was on the Intelligence Committee and then a CIA Director and Secretary of State. Rigid set of rules. If you make a mistake and a document gets tucked into the wrong place, it's possible. For goodness sake, put it back. Apologize. Don't say you don't have any regrets. If I end up having classified documents someplace, I found out that I did, I, I would regret it because I might have put some young soldier, sailor, airman, marine, I might have put their life at risk. And that's just no, no leader gets to do that. So I have a blanket rule. You sign up that says you'll handle classified information properly. Just do it. Well, do you think the DOJ, I mean, in all fairness, when they raided Mar-a-Lago, they put all the classified documents, laid them out on the floor and took pictures. I didn't see that coming out of Biden's house. No, this is this is again. There are two things that I think are are, are deeply political. That That's certainly the case. Um, they are handling these two, it appears, in very different ways. It sounds like they let... Uh, President Biden's personal lawyers be there. They certainly didn't do that down in Mar-a-Lago for President Trump. Uh, but second, I, I also watched uh, young, more junior people who mishandled classified information um, be treated very differently than America's most senior leaders. It shouldn't matter if you're a private first class in the Marines or you're the secretary of state or a congressman. 
you should all be held to the same standard in terms of handling that information. And I hope they will not treat one set of documents handled by a Republican or a Democrat differently, nor documents handled by someone who is a GS-12 differently than someone who's a United States senator. And possibly a related story, how important do you think the uh, House Republicans' investigation into the Biden family, uh, Jim Comer, uh, the uh, chairman of the Oversight Committee, House Oversight Committee, saying uh, what this looks like a classic influence peddling operation and the classified documents potentially uh, fold into that. How important is the work that Comer and House Republicans uh, are going to do here? It's important work. And never get, give an inch. I, I write about the fact that for two and a half years we suffered under the Russia hoax. I, I tell this story about January 6th, January 6th, 2017. This is two weeks before President Trump is inaugurated. Uh, Jim Comey, uh, uh, Clapper, uh, and Brennan came to Trump Tower and told the President of the United States he was a Russian asset. This, this harmed America's national security. For two and a half years we sat under this cloud. We need to make sure that our law enforcement agencies and the FBI, the intelligence command of the FBI, aren't political. And so we need to make sure that as we continue to unpack what happened with the Biden family and all that history, we know the story of the Biden laptop, or excuse me, the Hunter Biden laptop just before the election in 2020, where 50 folks came out and said this looks like Russian disinformation. They certainly had to know that wasn't true. Uh, this this undermines these institutions and it puts America at risk. Before we let you go, what is your timeline for 2024 in terms of making a decision? Oh, goodness. Only the Lord knows precisely when we will. But we are, Susan and I are thinking sometime late spring, early summer, We the two of us will have to make a final decision and then uh, begin to campaign if we decide we're going to get into the race. He is former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. The new book, Never Give an Inch, Fighting for the America I Love. Secretary of State Pompeo, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you both. Bless you. Have a good day. Thanks, you too. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. There's only one radio show in Chicago talking about today's biggest stories and telling you what they really mean. That show is this one. Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Dan and Amy, so what did you think of former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo? What do you think about him as a potential presidential candidate in 2024? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. Well, I'll take a couple calls. Kathy and Lyle, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hi. Thanks for taking my call, and thanks for the great job you do every single day. People love you, both of you, and the quality and content of the program. Thank you. Love the Thanks. interview with Mike Pompeo. The only comment I want to make, and I'm, and, and I guess I want some feedback on this because this notion of we're constantly hearing, you know, we need to do this. We need to make sure, like he was even saying, we need to make sure that you know things are equitable. That they, that, that that people are. He didn't use the word people are held accountable. That's my point. People need to be held accountable. There are people that should be in prison today, including Hillary Clinton for what's gone on. This is staggering. There's no consequence for people. And I know a lot of this has to do with whoever's in power in the political party, but it shouldn't because the judicial system should be a separate system and people should be held accountable when they break the law. And the laws have been broken over and over and over. And people talk about it in such a non, like almost a casual flippant way. Like it's just the way it is. And so of course it's obviously 
glaringly clear that the way President Trump, I don't care where people fall politically, the, the way he was treated in Mar-a-Lago and the whole thing with classified documents and Biden, everything about it isn't okay. And and um, Mike Pompeo's point about how that should never be happening is absolutely true and that we don't know who is put at risk. But the point is, whether it's the documents, whether it's, you know, what happened in Benghazi, whether it's, you know, the, the hammering and smashing and bleaching and destroying, you know, of, of computer evidence by Hillary Clinton, all of this stuff, nobody is being held accountable. James Comey, the people who absolutely initiated, created, undermined our democracy, undermined our elections, undermined a candidate in a free society intentionally with the point with, with the plan to destroy him and there's no actual consequence or accountability. When? When will that happen? And what do we need to do as the people to rise up and ensure that it does? Kathy, are you supporting Trump or are you candidate shopping? <laughs> does it matter? I'm, well, not, I'm just curious. I'm really I mean, open. You heard Mike Pompeo. Well, do you want him to run? Too, no, you know, no, you know what? I would say this. I don't know. You know, I know he worked for Trump and I don't know all the dynamics. I did not. I'm one of the people that did not like it all the way Trump talked about DeSantis, DeSantimonious or whatever he said. Mm. Don't do that. You know, I don't like that. I mean, I don't mean me personally. I, well, I didn't, but I mean, people don't like that. I don't know the inner things. I think it would be best for the party, best for the country is what I mean. If Trump, DeSantis, Pompeo, the people that worked for him with him, could come together and support, you know, whatever, what, whatever direction. But that's neither here nor there, because I'll tell you what, Amy, I'm, I, you, you know this. Look at your father. You know, God bless him. The point is, I, my parents, too, are that generation. You know what? Chicago was a Democratic city, and at the time when my parents were Democrats, the Democratic Party was the party of the people. It is so far not that anymore. And so, but even when it was, I was never a quote-unquote Democrat. I was always independent. I voted for people on both sides. I do my research, and I try to vote for whoever I believe will do the best possible job. So to answer your question, which was a long-winded answer, I apologize, is I don't, I'm not supporting a particular candidate in this moment. I want the truth. I want the truth exposed. I want us to get back to the Constitution. I want us to hold people account- accountable. We are a society of laws. Not opinions, not progressiveness, not, you know, bullying. The whole point of public service when it started in this country, public service, politicians were never meant to be in careers as politicians. It was intended to draw from the best and the brightest across every field that we would give of ourselves to something greater than ourselves for a period of time in service, in service to the public. We need to go back to that to term limits and to those things. But it is staggering to me. I can't, and I have such respect for both of you and for so many people that are the, the majority of, of good, good, noble people and probably the majority of good, noble people that once upon a time enter politics. But when you have career politicians, you have career corruption. And that we are tolerating, we are tolerating what has gone on as though it's okay and we're all responsible for Thank that, Kathy, you're cutting out on us, but thank you for the call. Good, great riff, great passion. Appreciate it. Chris and Evanston, quickly, 30 seconds. Well, I think it's uh, Pompeo and Kathy. I think that's the new uh, lineup. <laughs> <laughs> Kathy, uh, I want to be the first guest on the new Kathy program. I, uh, 
Wish you guys the absolute best. Happy New Year. Listening always and always appreciating. So you guys have a great day. That was a wonderful interview with Pompeo, and he really is one of the grown-ups in the room, and we need them back at the table. Thanks so much. Thanks for the call, Chris. You've made the switch, and it feels so good. You've switched to Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.